Well, good morning, class. Everybody's visiting. It's time to get started, they tell me. We're on the radio now and TV, so I guess we ought to start. It's good to see you here this morning. A little chilly, but uh, it'll warm up. We'll be fine. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to move to a new section in our outline. You recall that in chapter 1 and verse 20, we have the basis for our outline of the book. Notice it says uh, in uh, verse 19, Write therefore the things which you have seen. That's the vision of Christ in chapter 1. And then the things which are, that's the existing churches in Asia Minor, and then the things that will take place after these things. So we're in the second section now where we're going to deal with the things that are. And there's a little bit of a background that I want to review for you. You recall, before we pray, you recall that in chapter 1, we had this tremendous vision of Christ. And there were a number of different descriptions that were given of him. And as you look at the text, uh, just for a second, it tells us about some of those things. In the middle, uh, we find that this one is standing, has the golden lampstands, has seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And then it says he's clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and uh, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And we suggested that's a description of, uh, of uh, Christ as our great high priest. His head and his hair were like wool. You look down a little further in that verse, and uh, he, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Then in verse 15, the first part of it, his feet are burnished bronze, and been caused to glow in the furnace, purified. Then he t- talks about his voice was like the sound of mighty waters. And he had in his right hand the seven stars, which we find are the seven churches. And uh, he has a sharp sword in his, uh, that c- comes from his mouth. And its face is shining like the sun. Each of those descriptions, child of God, I, I review them. We went over and tried to give you what we thought was a good understanding of each one. They're open for more depth study. All of us are still trying to work our way through it. But the bottom line is those descriptions that are given to us of Christ are then repeated in the seven churches as he is uh, able to witness and give a message and a warning and a praise to each of the churches. What he is doing is picking some of the characteristics from the vision that he feels are appropriate for the particular message for the particular church that he's covering. Everybody with me? So that's what we'll find as we begin. Uh, And I want you to notice something else before we pray. And that is that each of the messages to each of the churches begins with an identification of Christ based on vision one. He he talks about uh, the things that he can commend them for, And then he talks about things that he uh, needs to condemn them for and call for a challenge of repentance and so on. That's the message as it is in its skeleton form 
for each of the seven churches. Everybody with me? All right, now let's pray and we'll begin our study. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that I have to teach. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me insight. Your spirit would work through me. And so that I will learn even as I uh, teach and the students will learn as I teach. And we together would grow in Christ and glorify him. And help us to make the appropriate applications that are given to the churches and see how they apply to us as individual members here at Glen Iris Baptist Church. We pray that you will do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, class, we want to begin with the very first of the seven churches, chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what it says, to the angel. Now, we'll talk about that in a second. Angel means messenger. And we have shared with you, we think that that's not talking to a particular angel that is over the church, but the messenger of the church. That would be the pastor of the church. And then notice the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? Now, we're going to talk about Ephesus just a second as well. Uh, Ephesus is a, was a major city, a port city, a seaport. Uh, in Asia Minor back in, in this particular time. It was famous for the temples there. Uh, Artemis, in particular, is one of the temples that is one of the seven wonders of the world at that particular point in history. And then we remember also that if you go to the book of Acts, it's the Apostle Paul who has ministry in this church for several years. Uh, and uh, uh, then... Uh, the other thing that I would say also is that he had a major impact on this church, but it is not necessarily lasting. And I think all of us need to understand that. As we go through each of these churches, he's going to say, I can remove your candlestick. Point. He removed the candlestick for every one of them. And so consequently, when you go to Asia Minor, as it's Turkey, as it's called today, you're going to find that this church at Ephesus, nor any of the rest of them, exists today for various reasons. Now notice what it says, to the church at Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, remember that description from the vision, in his right hand, the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, says, now, He's going to begin the particular ministry he has to Ephesus. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time what I think is a way to describe it. I want to say to you, it, apathy about Christ negatively impacts the saint's destiny. Let me say it again. When you look at this particular message, when uh, you look at it, you conclude, I think, apathy about Christ negatively impacts the saint's destiny. It is a message to the church, but you will notice also he makes it a message to individuals within the church. That's why I use the words that I, that I do. Apathy about Christ negatively impacts the saint's destiny. Now, here we go. When we look at the text, I know your deeds... And your toil. Now, I'm going to suggest the construction maybe argues against it, but most, I think, 
would say that the deeds are uh, all in, that's an all-encompassing term that refers to all of the other things that he's going to mention here in the next uh, verse or two. Notice what it says. I know your deeds. And oedai is the word that's used there. I know perfectly. I know all about I have absolute under perfect understanding of your church. I know your deeds, your toil. The word toil there, class, is the, to describe a person who is laboring to the point of uh, sweating. In other words, these people were great workers in the church. And, uh, and not only I know your toil, but your perseverance. Now, class, we've talked about that word any number of times in uh, my classes, and I've done it when I've been allowed to preach here at the church. Hupo meno is the word. Meno, to abide. Hupo, under. To abide under the circumstances of life. So not only are they workers to the point of exhaustion and sweat, but they're very patient. They're willing to endure the circumstances that come their way. And that you cannot endure evil men. In other words, I want to use another word. They are diligent in their labor. They are patient in their perseverance, but they are resistant to people who they consider to be evil. They resist that. And then it says, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The word I want to use there is vigilant. Not only are they resistant to evil men, but they are vigilant, watching to try to protect themselves from false teaching. And may I suggest that here at Glen Iris Baptist Church, we got good doctrine. We have a pastor that teaches the word and, uh, and so on. But we need to be careful where we can be susceptible to stuff cre- creeping in to our church, just like here at Ephesus. So they were vigilant and found people that were false to be false. And then they function with a motivation, a good motivation. It says, and you, uh, and, and you have perseverance, uh, you've endured for my name's sake. They're doing it for the right reasons. When you go to any number of passages, especially if you go to uh, Ezekiel 36, there's this tremendous emphasis on the name of God and profaning the name of God. And uh, these people, according to the Lord Jesus, is not doing that. They are very involved in uh, being motivated by his name and glorifying his name. And then, and have not grown weary. There's endurance there um, because of their desire to serve the Lord, and glorify his name. But, here we go. We have his identification. We have his uh, commendations. But now he's going to be, de- be dealing uh, with his uh, correction or condemnation of the church. But, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. And we want to talk about that a little bit. 
And I want to use an illustration that I think draws all of us into this possibility to some extent. Uh, I remember when I was a young Christian, I'd just come to know the Lord. I was so excited about knowing the truth, and, and I used descriptions like that. The sky was bluer, and the grass was greener. Everything was great. I was excited about the fact that I was part of the family of God and understood what it meant to be a Christian, and I had eternal life. I knew I was going to heaven when I died, and all of that. But over the years, I catch myself, the sky's not necessarily as, it bl- as blue as it was. Does that make sense to you? The grass is not necessarily as green as it was. I get caught in a change of circumstances, and it impacts me negatively if I'm not careful. Am I making sense? And so when we come to this passage, we ought not to be, oh, these poor people, they should know better than that. Uh, But he says, but this I have against you. You have left your first love. Now, child of God, we want to expand that a little bit. You've lost uh, or left your first love. I want you to go with me to a number of passages. I want you to hold your place here in Revelation uh, chapter 2. And I want you to go with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, and we'll talk about how we're supposed to love the Lord. Matthew 22 talks about loving God and the command to love him. And I want to note a couple of things with you. We're going to look at a number of different passages, three of them to be exact. But here's the first one. Notice that when you get to verse 37, you have this quote from the Old Testament about loving the Lord. Notice what it says. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The totality of your being ought to focus on loving God. But then notice what it says. Verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to look up here, and I want you to listen to me closely. As we look at the New Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, there are certain commands that will take priority. We're to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, body, and so on. The second, one step down, not on an equal basis, I don't think, a priority love to God, and then a love uh, for my neighbor. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. You see the difference there? One has priority over the other uh, to some extent. It's what we call hierarchicalism. And as we look through the New Testament, as we look through the Old, there are times when one law applies in another situation, another law applies and has... uh, has uh, uh, more importance to it, takes a priority in certain circumstances. But we're to love God first, but the second is like you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Then I want you to go to a second passage uh, in in our text. Uh, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 deals with this same concept. Luke 14, and I think it's verse uh, 
26, 14 and uh, verse 21, or 26. There it is. Luke 14, 26. Notice what it says. If any man comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, there's priority again. I am supposed to love God more than I do my parents. I am to love God uh, with a priority that is uh, above my wife and my children. Now look up here. That's not, when he uses the term hate there, I want you to understand what he's making is a distinction between the primary and the secondary. Primary I'm to love God, and it's supposed to be such a strong love for him, it's like I hate my relatives, my wife, my kids. But you go to other passages of Scripture, husbands love your wives, you see. You love your kids. So we have to look at Scripture, compare Scripture with Scripture, and we get the best understanding of the text. It's a balance. Everybody with me? One priority over the other. Then there's one more passage that I want you to go with me to. And now look up here again before we go to it. We're going to go to 1 John 2, 15 and 16. But the priority love goes to God. Then there is a priority love to, in our relationships with our family and, and friends and neighbors and so on. But when you now go to 1 John chapter 2, you're going to see a... A, a, a second or a third thing. We're to love God. We're to love our neighbors in, 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 uh, uh, properly and family and so on. But here, we're not to love the world. God wouldn't put these verses in here if that wasn't a problem. In other words, we Christians could become so enamored with the world and the world system that it negates our love for God. Now look at it. Notice what it says, verse 15 of John, First uh, John 2. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I didn't say that. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that. If I love the world too much, I am not loving God. Because His love in my life is supposed to be a priority over everything. Got it? So if I'm loving the world too much, we're negating the kind of priority love that goes to God. Then notice... He expands that concept. We're not to love the world, nor the things of the world. Notice verse 16. For all that is in the world. Now, here comes the things of the world. He boils it down into three categories. It's attitudes. It's not necessarily things, but it's attitude toward things that he's after here. Notice, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Or not to love the world because it's 
Uh, that kind of love is not from the Father. Now, notice there are three categories. I've covered this before. I know I have, but I want to emphasize it. It's so important for our understanding as believers. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh. <clears throat> now, I used to look at that and I would say, oh, I know what the lust of the flesh is. That's talking about sexual sin and so on. No, then what does the next phrase mean? The lust of the eyes. So there's something else that we've got to look at. And uh, if you go to uh, the rest of the scripture, you will find, for example, in Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16, uh, we are to... To walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, not grieve the Spirit. Uh, we're to walk in the Spirit. Why? Because the flesh lusteth against our human spirit there, not capital S, but our human spirit. And our human spirit that wants to serve God lusteth against our flesh. But our flesh is too strong. So what have we got to do? We've got to go to not our spirit, but the Holy Spirit to help us with our spirit loving God. Am I making sense? Now, the idea then is the lust of the flesh is what I call self-reliance. In other words, when I try to do things in my own strength as a believer, I am in a good church, I am listening to my pastor, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I am going to get cut off and sabotaged by the attacks of sin and the sin nature in my life if I don't follow the Spirit of God. But what most people, hear what I said, most Christians get caught up in loving their independence and they get upset with God always trying to tell them what to do. And when that happens, we've entered into self-reliance. That's one of the things that the world thinks is important. And what are we doing? We are loving what the world does. So we're not loving God. Am I making sense? All right. Then notice, there's a second thing. The lust of the eyes. I call it self-indulgence. Lust of the flesh, self-reliance. Uh, lust of the eyes, self-indulgence. Men get cut off, uh, get caught up in... Uh, Big cars. I used to have a street rod. I had two different ones. And I loved to go to car shows. And I had a 37 Ford, and then I had a 39 Chevrolet. They're all souped up with Chevy 350s and 350 transmission. That's man stuff. Got to be careful that that doesn't become more important. Self-indulgence. What are ladies like? May I make a suggestion? We love, ladies, the clothes and all of those kinds of things, you know? So we've got to be careful. Self-indulgence, luxury. And then it also includes things like immorality and so on. So, lust of the flesh, self-reliance. Lust of the eyes, uh, self-indulgence. And the boastful pride of life, which is not from the Father. We get to the point in our thinking, believers, when we think that we're more important and what we want to do is more important than what God wants us to do. And when we do that, we are loving the world, the attitudes of the world. Am I making sense here? And so the point is, 
When we go back to our text in Revelation chapter 2, when he says we've left our first love, what does that mean? Our priority love to God has deteriorated where our family becomes more important than God or uh, the things that uh, we enjoy in the world, the luxuries and, and so on. All those things because it's relationships with people and the things that we can enjoy in this world get in the way of loving God. And what have we done? We've moved away, departed, and become apathetic toward our love for God. And that's what's happening here. They have left their first love. Then notice what he says as a result of that. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Go back to the blue sky and the green grass. Go back to those days. You've got to get back there, okay? You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at the first, your love for God and so on. Or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And he did remove that candlestick. Ultimately, they didn't repent. Yet, notice what he says. There's something else I want to address. And he'll go into more detail with some of the other churches on this one. Yet this you have, that you hate the deeds of the uh, Nicolaitans. Now, oh my, you cannot imagine how much ink and paper is used to try to deal with this one. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, the suggestion has been made by Arrhenius, for example, back in the early church, that these were the followers of Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons uh, described for us, identified for us in Acts chapter 6. And then the controversy becomes, well, did he fall into apostasy or did he uh, propagate something and his followers uh, uh, moved into apostasy? I, I would really like to think it were the latter. But something happens in this church, and they get infected with the Nicolaitans. Now, what is that all about? Well, find out that it involves uh, immorality and involves sacrifice to idols and so on as we work our way through these churches. But the main thing that we want to see right here, Nicolaitans, that is made up of two words. One has to do with conquering. And the other has to do uh, with, uh, with uh, laity. So it's a conquering or mastering uh, the laity. Leadership that gains too much uh, control over laity. Everybody with me? Now, that's all we can say about that for now. And he who has ear, look at verse 7. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, to him. Who overcomes, I will grant that they might eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I have put that together in a little phrase. This message is we are to love God with a priority love. A priority love over our love for family and friends. Priority of love over the things of this world and that are described for us in 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 16. So I go back to my saying. What are we saying? What is the message we take away from uh, this church 
message. And I would suggest to you, our apathy about Christ negatively impacts the saints' destiny. Now, if you go back to the text, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He that overcomes, in other words, the saints' destiny. We are to love God in such a way that it does not negatively uh, or move away from that love so that it negatively impacts our relationship with Christ, which ultimately impacts in a negative way our destiny in the future. Everybody with me? Now, that's the first one. Now, look at a second one as we come to verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna, right. I want to stop and talk about that church just for a little bit. The word Smyrna means bitter. So Smyrna is, is from a tree that has this bitter taste. If you taste it, it's bitter. But it has this sweet-smelling aroma, and they make uh, perfume from it. And so many suggest, okay, here's something that is bitter that can end up smelling good. But they're going to they're going to fall into some difficulties. And so the church is going through some bitter times, and he wants to deal with that. Notice what he says. By the way, this church is about 35, 40 miles north and a little bit east uh, from Ephesus. Not very far from the last church that we looked at. Now notice what it says. Uh, The first and the last, here's the way Christ identifies himself, the first and the last, he's going to deal with that from the vision, who was dead and has come to life, says this. Now, we know we're talking about Christ, and here's what he's going to say. Here's his commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You are poor, but you're very rich. I know your tribulation. There's adversity. I know your poverty. You're poor, but you're rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. Notice those three things. Adversity, poverty, and blasphemy. That's what this church faces. Now notice, here's his uh, compensation to them. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. In other words, adversity is already experienced, but you've got something coming up that's worse than that. Notice, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, I want to stop there a second. We just had Veterans Day, and I spoke at chapel here at the, at the school, and, and then I was on the radio program later on, and, uh, and, uh, and then I was at a meeting at the club for veterans uh, on, in the evening. And one of the things I want to say to you is, having been in combat, to say that you don't fear, that's what the word is here. But the idea is not that you're not afraid. It's you don't let that fear control your life and paralyze you. A hero is a person who is absolutely scared to death and does his job anyway. 
Okay? So it's not fear in the sense there is no fear at all. It's that you don't fear to the point of paralyzing your ministry and testimony for the Lord. I think that's a clarification that is legitimate. Notice what he says. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison that you may be tested. And it says that you will have tribulation for ten days. Now, as you go to the commentaries and you study all the theologians, uh, you'll note that some of them say, what does the 10 mean? Well, some of them say it means 10 periods of tribulation and adversity. And they try to identify what those periods are. Uh, Some say 10 days. That just means for a short while. Uh, May I make a suggestion? I think it means 10 days. Okay. I don't have any reason historically or exegetically to say it's anything but for 10 days, a little over a week, you're going to have some really tough times. And I'm telling you about it. Don't let it get you and don't let it paralyze you. Uh, Then notice it says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, here's what I want to say. Here is a point where I can say, Here's, in a nutshell, what I think the message to the church at Smyrna is. Purity, here we go. Purity before God leads to the saints' intimacy with God. Purity before God can lead to the saints' intimacy with God. In other words, when we go through difficult times and we remain faithful and pure, that uh, can lead to a very intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. Be faithful. Look at the latter part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I think that impacts us in this life, and it impacts us in the future as well. Notice, he says, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt, By the second death, it will be an indication of uh, your salvation before the Lord. Now, there's the second one. That one doesn't have uh, a lot of um, condemnation involved in it. It is more of a commendation to this church. That makes sense? That's not true of any of the rest of them. Then notice we come to verse 12. And we come to the third church. Notice, and the angel of the and to the angel of the church at Pergamum or Pergamus. Right. Now let's stop there just for a second. The word Pergamum or Pergamus has to do with uh, worldliness, being married, the idea of marriage, the marriage bond. And as we look through it, it's not talking about husband and wife relationships is talking about a marriage to the world. We're not to get involved in worldliness. Now notice what he says. To the angel of the church at Pergamon write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, there's your identification of Christ from the vision in chapter 1, I know where you dwell, uh, where Satan's throne is, 
and you hold fast my name, faithful to his name, and did not deny my faith, even in days in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. Uh, you have been faithful even when you were uh, being attacked and one of your own was killed. You were still being faithful. Now, notice, but, verse 14, here we go. I have a few things against you because you have, there are some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Then he goes on to say, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to do what? Eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of men, uh, immorality. Now, class, we've got to look at that a little bit. First of all, I want to say there is a difference between eating meats offered to the idols and the meats that are being eaten or questioned in the controversy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Is it okay to eat meat that's been offered to idols? And Paul is saying the idol is nothing. You can eat the meat except if it's going to harm one of your weaker brethren and upset them, then don't. But other than that, it's legit. Now, that's a different concept from the one we have here. Eating meat here is actually being in the worship service of uh, the pagan idols. Well, let me show you what we're talking about. Uh, go with me, for example, to Numbers 25. Numbers 25. Numbers 25 is dealing with uh, these folks that have gotten caught up in uh, worshiping idols and eating the meats offered to idols. Look what it says, 25, verse 1. While Israel remained in Shedem, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, and they invited the people to sacrifice what? To their gods, and the people ate, and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to bile a peor. Now, observation. When you see the word eat there, you're talking about eating in the worship service of the idols. They've been invited to go to worship their pagan gods and to be a participant in that worship, which includes eating the food that was offered to the idols in the worship service. In other words, they were involved in the feast of worship of the pagan gods. And the text goes on to say, and they bowed down uh, to their gods. So when we talk about eating meat in this context, and that's what carries over into Revelation chapter 2, we're not talking about the controversy about weak Christians in 1 Corinthians 9. Is that okay to eat that meat when it's being sold out in the marketplace? Or will you go to somebody's house uh, who is a pagan and they have meat? And uh, Don't ask about it because you don't want to stir up a controversy. But it's not going to contaminate you. It's not sinful. 
But here, eating is eating as part of the worship service to pagan idols. Everybody with me? Understand that. Now, I want you to go to another passage. Go with me to Numbers 31. Numbers 31, verse 13. And we'll see a, an, an expansion of this concept. Numbers 31, verse 15. Now, there, the uh, Mennonites have been giving Israel a hard time. There is a conflict between them. Uh, the Israelites win. But when you come to verse 15, Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Yeah, they have. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was amongst them. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has not known a man intimately. You've brought the people in that caused all the, the controversy in the first place and caused the young men who were so infatuated with the women to get involved in their pagan worship and led Israel to fall into sin. Now, where did that come from? Notice in the middle, uh, in middle of verse 16, Behold, these, these women, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. See it? So when we go back to Revelation chapter 2, he says, I've got a few things against you. What? Well, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What was that? To go into the temples, to eat the meat in the temples, and to worship the pagan gods. And part of the worship continued not only from eating the meat, but immorality in the worship. So he says, you have people hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Bala to put the stumbling block before the sons of Israel to what? To eat the things sacrificed to the idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now get it. You're talking about, you're talking about somebody in your church who is not only coming to your church, but they're going to the pagan temples and participating even into the point of the immorality that goes on in the worship of those pagan idols. You've got people in the Christian church doing that kind of thing. Then notice, he doesn't stop there. When you look at the text, he goes on, but I have a few things against you. There are some that hold to the teaching of Balaam. Then verse 15, Thus you also have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, we talked about that a minute ago in a previous message. Point. Evidently, the Nicolaitans, who were conquerors over the lay people, were also people who were advocating, in some way, participating in the pagan idol worship as well. So you got two different groups that are involved in this church and Pergamum that are involved in this kind of thing. It's hard to believe that Christian churches could fall into that kind of thing. But if we would stop and think about it a little bit, class, we would conclude there's a lot of stuff in our churches today that we can't hardly believe it's there, but it is. Amen? Now, I've got to close out. So notice what he says uh, in verse 16. 
Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give the hidden manna. The hidden manna. In other words, you're going to have a relationship with me that allows me to provide for you. And then you, I will give you a white stone. Now, time's gone. I'll simply say to you, most understand that white stone to mean this is your ticket to get into a, a relationship with God, intimacy with him. You will get the hidden man of provision, and you will get a white stone that allows you to have relationship with him. And you have a new name written on the stone, which represents who you are in the family of God. Amen? Now, there's the first three churches. I've gone through it rapidly. I hope it will be helpful to you as you go back and study it for yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the insight that we gained from the study of the messages of these churches. May we be men and women who will be diligent and faithful to you and honor your name. In Jesus' name, amen.